And when you're talking to someone who's so displaced and maybe so harmed from being outside, maybe relying on substances and things like that, sometimes they just say no because it doesn't matter to them anymore. Or they have such a trauma, they don't even want to talk about being a veteran. So we had to work together with the Veteran Affairs to, to learn how to overcome some of that stigma. From the heart of Hub City, downtown Moncton, New Brunswick, this is Well and Fair. I'm your host, Anna Larade, and I want to see change in my lifetime. So let's talk. Today I'm talking with Dawn Whedon from the Greater Moncton Homelessness Steering Committee. She is the Coordinated Access Facilitator, implementing a homelessness response system called Built for Zero. Hi, Dawn. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hi, Anna. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to hear more about Built for Zero. Zero homelessness sounds right up my alley for Moncton. <laughs> it certainly does. Um, for our listeners, just to let people know, if you want to go to builtforzerocanada.ca, um, you can explore um, some of what I'm going to talk about today in a little bit more detail from a national lens. Today, I'm going to focus on Moncton and uh, how we use this system. Is this a system that's found across the country? It is. So it uh, comes from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. And it started off several years ago with a 20,000 Homes campaign. And uh, Built for Zero was born from the success of that campaign. It is a homelessness response system used across Canada. I believe about 40-ish, maybe more, communities across Canada use this system. Um, and many in the United States, probably more than 100 in the United States, use it as well. Okay, so it's pretty broadly accepted right now. Absolutely. In the province of Ontario, in fact, just this past year, has adopted it as a, um, a requirement for funding. for. So if you're to receive uh, homelessness funds in the province of Ontario, um, you must be um, streaming your funds through the Built for Zero system. So I'll kind of be the focus of what I talk about here today so people can kind of understand the value of that. Okay. So what is the Built for Zero system? How does it work? So there's different com many components that make up the system. And what we, uh, the, the main component and what's required is a coordinated access system, which I'll explain, and a by names list, which I'll also explain. Those are the two primary components um, to operate um, this homelessness response system. Here in Moncton, um, we have both. Um, so our core, our, our, well, first of all, I'll just kind of read the definition of a by names list, and then we'll we'll talk a bit more about exactly what it does. This is nice because I know um, uh, uh, on episode two, Vincent Marola mentioned the by names list, mentioned uh, how um, the good is doing in our community, but we didn't have a chance to get in a lot of detail. So it's going to be nice to expand on that. Yeah. So I'll try to unpack it for you. A by names list is a real time list of all known folks, uh, people experiencing homelessness in our community that have consented to. Be be on the list. So we have to get people's consent, of course, um, to, to put them on there. It is. It includes a robust, a robust set of data points that support the coordinated access and prioritization at an individual level or like a household level and an understanding of the inflow and the outflow of the homelessness sector on a systems level. So the real-time actionable data, it supports triage to services, um, systems performance evaluations and advocacy for policies and resources necessary to end homelessness in each community. So just to make sure I'm understanding where we're at so far. So a coordinated access, does that mean like all kind of the nonprofits and all the folks working in homelessness in Moncton kind of pool their resources? Is that a correct understanding of that? That is exactly right. So coordinated access is a way for communities to bring consistency to the process by which people experiencing homelessness access housing and housing related services equitably and fair. H housing related services, stuff like um, having medical access, having 
um, social workers, things like that? Yeah, housing-based case management is a big piece. Um, quite often individuals who are, have, especially anyone who's been in kind of entrenched in homelessness for a long period of time. Because as we learned, housing first is housing with resources. Exactly. So that's exact, That's one of the big pieces to coordinated access is, ha- is the housing first approach. And then the other word that I think jumped out at me was triage. So like my, my background and my understanding of triage is more from a medical context, right? Is you're kind of getting a, a sense of your total, the, the, like, okay, when I was still in the Army Reserve, triage was a big thing we learned. And you see who everyone who is is injured and you get a sense of who's the most injured, who's going to benefit from your resources and time the most, and then you kind of act accordingly. How does that apply to a homelessness population? So that's one of the components or one of the functions, if you would, of the by names list. Um, we have a... so. The the idea of coordinated access is every door is the right door. So if I'm experiencing homelessness in Moncton, it should not matter what agency or what homeless shelter or homeless service I'm engaged with, even if it's the outreach teams, I should be receiving the same access or the same service. So coordinated access um, allowed us to create kind of a process or an intake, if you would, for every single individual experiencing homelessness in Moncton, no matter which agency they're engaged in, if, if any at all. Sometimes it's outreach staff uh, that are that are working on the streets. We call them street reach workers. So no matter who you engage with, you'll receive the same intake process. And... Um, to, to be able to access homelessness resources. So, for example, like we have 200, or in December, at the end of December, we had 247 individuals on our by names list, all, all experiencing homelessness. That's not including folks who are at risk or have received an eviction or, you know, know they have to leave their place at the end of the month. Those are folks that have already surpassed all of those uh, things and are actually homeless. They're staying in the emergency shelter, sleeping outside, sleeping in sheds, cars, unsafe locations. Um, things like that. So there's 247 in our community at the end of December so far that we had on our by names list. So if you can picture, okay, so we have three empty apartments. How do you select of the 247 people go into those three apartments? And so uh, the coordinated access system allows us to use a triage tool. And so we, every individual experiencing homelessness, whether no matter who they engage with, will have uh, the same triage tool used. Uh, what kinds of factors affect your priority? So that's something that the community decides upon, um, usually on an annual basis, because the landscape is always changing, our resources are always changing. So we actually get together as a community um, through coordinated access and kind of discuss those kinds of uh, the, what what would make me priority, for example, over you. Um, and so much like in the emergency room, um, what happens is if you can picture going into the emergency room and there's you know probably 100 people waiting for services and only two family doctors, and I walk in and I have sliced my finger open. It's bleeding pretty bad. I need stitches. Uh, you know, I'm, I have a weak stomach, so I'm probably going to pass out. It's not a very good scene. I'm in there for two, three hours waiting to see a doctor. And you walk in, you know, just right now, and you're having stroke symptoms. So if the fa- if the doctor on call came out and said, oh, Don, hey, how's it going? You're my next door neighbor. I haven't seen you in ages. Come on in. And overlooks you when meanwhile you're having stroke symptoms and really need services before me, even though I've been sitting there for three hours, uh, holding my finger and kind of off and on passing out. Um, so, you know, the hospitals have de- have de- have used they use a triage tool to determine who's going to get service next. Everybody in that house in that room needs a doctor, but 
who and what order. So we kind of take the same approach. So the triage tool, um, along with other factors, allow us to be able to identify who needs services next. And then what happens is the name, the individual's name and their details go on the by names list and there's formulas built into it to prioritize. So for example, if Rising Tide said at our coordinated access table, Don, we have three apartments coming up at the end of February. We can take, you know, either, you know, any gender, you know, they'll kind of let us know what, what, the, what the mandate is for the units because some buildings are, are specific to certain genders or certain age groups and things like that. So what we do is filter the B&L for priority and we, we send them the list of priority names and that's called a dynamic prioritization. The priority names that also fit within the scope of the building. Of I the guess. apartment, exactly, yeah. So what we're finding really commonly in Moncton um, lately, like for the private market sector. So we, we have different kinds of housing. We have agencies that have housing and rising tide. I, I mentioned them because they're quite known to public. Um, and they that's an agency housing, housing first uh, model. YWCA, John Howard, um, trying not to leave anybody out, but there's, very, <laughs> there's various agencies that have housing that will take folks from the by names list. Um, for example, YWCA, they have transitional housing for females only. So, and John Howard has transitional housing for males only. Harvest House has, has also has um, supportive housing units for different, some of the buildings are mixed gender, some, so sometimes it matters and sometimes it don't. So we have to filter accordingly. And I'm guessing part of what would affect that filter is the kinds of resources that the individual might need, exactly. whether they're available at that building, because right. not everyone has the resources or the scope to be providing everything to everyone. Exactly. And what we're seeing in our, like one of the other features of the by names, this is it allows us to see kind of trends or, um, you know, resources that are more needed or gaps in our system. So just to give you an example, if, if we have a whole bunch of apartments being built in Moncton, you know, agencies are building apartments for very low acuity, very kind of low needs, light touch support. Sorry, what does acuity mean? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So acuity is just a kind of like an, um, it's just a term that's used in the sector to kind of identify a level of need. Um, so if you have a very, very low need and you just probably need a little bit of help getting back to work, um, you know, just to get started on your feet again, you'd be kind of like a lower acuity. But someone higher acuity might have complex medical issues, exactly. for example, or a, or, yeah. a or a disability or things like that. Yeah, that's right. Maybe some mental health barriers, um, maybe some addictions barriers, maybe both. Um, so yeah, they're kind of like the more support you need, the higher acuity you would be. So we, our by names list allows us to kind of look at our population to say, here's what our community needs. So the government doesn't invest, you know, millions of dollars in something that's not going to make sense or target the right population. If they're going to invest millions of dollars in an agency that's going to build apartments that are very high barrier and, and only allows, you know, very low acuity folks in there. And we can say, well, we only have 20 folks on our by names list that really will be able to access that service. Why are you building an investing all that money into building a hundred of those units. Just an example, you know. Right, because a lot of the, the, the units building, it's not a municipal decision. It is the province that is taking the lead on a lot of these things, but they need information from the city in order to make appropriate decisions. Is that a good understanding of our current situation? Yeah, and so the coordinated access uh, system, the by names list, uh, aims to match resources. So if you would... Um, you know, it's, it's okay to say I'm going to build 50 apartments for homeless people. 
and that's the only details that are are required. As well, if it's a homogenous group. Yeah, exactly. So how do you know who's most likely to die tonight that really should be getting that resource? That shakes you up, hey. It really comes down to that question. It really does. And so going back to the old school way of doing business and like the example I just gave of the doctor in the emergency room, it would not be, it's not fair that resources are only available to people who you know. Yeah. So, And I think that unfairness can feel dehumanizing when you're part of the group experiencing homelessness is the arbitrariness and the sense of luck and the sense of who you know to get your human needs met can uh, can be very difficult to bear. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other features of the by names list is it allows us to look at, into, at, at not just as a systematic um, approach to say, you know, in our community, how many units we need for what population and how many housing first units we need or how many rapid rehousing units we need. But it also allows us to look at an individual's needs um, to say, okay, well, so this individual would most likely really benefit from this type of support or that type of support. So we'll try to wrap that service around the individual. Um, and that's Moncton actually has quite a low eviction rate. We have one of the lowest in Canada. I think the national rate for evictions, you know, using the by names list data, is that sits at about sixteen percent nationally. And Moncton's always like around two or three percent. Is that evictions across? all rental units across all of Moncton or is no. that a, a no it's because it's more specific than that yeah so it's it that's evictions based on the by names list data okay yeah so the, in the homeless sector so for example of the folks on the by names list that get housed two to three percent end up evicted versus nationally 16%. That's so much lower. It is. And the reason why I, I feel is because we do a really great job here in Moncton of matching and like not just arbitrarily saying, oh, here's an apartment available, next person on the list, here you go in and hope they do okay. We actually look at what services they need. Is this apartment even suitable for that individual? And if not, why and what else do they need? So we kind of really dig deep into making sure we're matching appropriately. Do people who are offered an apartment kind of have the choice to say no if they don't feel it's a good fit for them? Or does that like kind of kick them off the list? Or No, absolutely. I Everybody deserves choice. People deserve choice in where they live, what who, who provides them services, what services they engage with. If you look at the Housing First model in particular, that's actually a really huge component of the Housing First model is that people have choice. Um, unfortunately, in Moncton, we don't have enough empty apartments to be able to say to somebody, we have apartment A, B, and C. Which one would you like to go look at first? I would love it when, to, to when we get to that point, but we're not there quite yet. So how it works is we kind, we, you know, we can say to somebody, you know, I'm going to use Rising Tide as an example again. So Rising Tide has an apartment available on such and such a street. Um, and, we're, and when you know you were next in priority, would you like to go look at the apartment? Sometimes people will look at an apartment and, turn and say, it's not for me. Or sometimes agencies or private market landlords will have specific rules that don't make sense for that person, like no overnight guests or uh, no smoking or various rules that people, sometimes it's even like... Well, just no like pets what, well, just yeah. like when you're finding a place to rent, is yeah. sometimes you have like no pets and then you have a cat or whatever. Yeah, so we don't discriminate when we offer an individual a unit. In fact, I always, I always find it very admirable when an individual who is really struggling can even identify what they think is going to be successful for them. I think that's just a huge thing that we need to embrace. And if somebody says to us, you know, that apartment's not going to work for me because. 
I, I think that's a win in itself because now we know what to look for for that person or how to match them better rather than, you know, historically saying, well, if you don't take this, you're getting nothing. And they go in there knowing it wasn't going to work to begin with and setting people up for failure. So we, we don't do that. It, we don't do it that way here. So we don't discriminate when somebody refuses a unit. We just, they, they stay in priority. Nothing changes. We just... You wait just for something go else. Go to the next highest priority person on the list exactly. and give them the offer and wait for the right fit for that person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the by names list, um, you sort of threw a number. It was like 247. Seven. That was the end of December. So that kind of reminded me of a story that came up at the end of the year last year where, and I, I remember reading this story and being feeling so confused where essentially um, the the, the count for how many homeless people we have in Moncton right now seem to have huge disparities. And I, I, was, like, I mean, these were not great jokes, but it was joking with people like, how can we not count in this city? <laughs> uh, but of course, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, how did that disparity come to be? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so back to the definition of the by names list. And I had mentioned to you that the by names list um, requires consent. So... It, we can only, when we're, when we're saying there's 247 people in our community at the end of December homeless, we're basing that on the folks that are on the by names list. So one of the other beautiful things about this system that we weren't able to do before we had this in place is we're able to identify gaps. So when other community members or, or service providers are saying to us, you know, we think the number's higher because, well, that allows us to have a response. And so we can, you know, look at, well, why would those individuals not be on the by names list? Is it because people weren't offering that opportunity? Is it because they're not wanting to go on there, not understanding the whole point of it? You know, feeling uncomfortable sharing information or signing things. So we can look at what the barriers are and we can respond accordingly to fix that part that. Right. Because when you say when, because when sometimes for me, when I hear something is consent based, it's easy for me to just assume that everyone's getting informed consent and everyone has made an informed decision to not consent if that's the case. But it's important to remember, and thank you for reminding me of this, that maybe you didn't have the opportunity in the first place to consent or not, or possibly you, I, I could imagine myself being in that situation and thinking, everyone's talking about how there's no housing supply. There's no housing supply. What's the point of being on a list, yeah. right? Yeah. And so one of the other functions of the by names list is systematic uh, improvements. So the other purpose of having a by names list is just for us to be able to say to the province, we are lacking in this particular kind of housing, or we are lacking in this particular service, or, you know, we're noticing a huge gap in services. Just for example, we're noticing an influx of folks coming out of corrections that are not being directed to housing that are coming into the homeless sector. Or for example, we're noticing, you know, a, a lot of new people coming into our community from other provinces, like just for example. So we're able to kind of see trends and patterns so we can really look at our system to say, what are we going to do about this? How do we get more resources? So for example, we just a lot of so we are a reaching homes community in Canada. Um, reaching homes is the home is the federal government's response or sorry, a homelessness strategy. And so we receive reaching home funds in our community. And one of the requirements to receive reaching home funds is to have a coordinated access and by nameless system. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't qualify for the funds. Because of those funds this year, we were able to, and they, these folks just got hired, like in the last week, we were able to hire- In the last week? Yeah, 
yeah, we were able to hire three new, what we call intensive housing-based case managers. So one of the things I was noticing in the past year or so, sometimes folks were getting housing either through their own method or uh, private market, and we didn't have enough staff to support them. So agencies were, for example, saying, you know, our caseloads are so full, we can only support the folks that we are housing. So if somebody, a family finds an apartment in private market from Kijiji, so it's no longer a housing issue, it's a support issue. But, you know, we know they're, they're probably going to get evicted because there's no one there helping them with certain things. Right. So it's a circumstance where you either... Um, like b before these case managers came on where you either stay on the list and wait for housing with all the supports you need or you get into this private market housing right away but sort of quote-unquote sacrifice the supports that you would have been entitled to had you been housed through waiting on the by names list and that's yeah. kind of the problem that's trying to get addressed yeah exactly so I was able to gather that data and say to the like to the to the community and to the funders we need new we need additional staff that are not dedicated to particular agencies that are dedicated to the by names list because people are getting housing and they're not attached to agencies so they're not getting supported and so we were able to prove that need in community using the by names list data and we now have three more in, in we now have three more intensive base case managers so to loop back to your question you just asked about choice choice for housing i actually just experienced this just before coming here today uh, we had an individual who um, a couple actually that we were able to um, get uh, housing for and so now we need to make sure we have the right support for them and because we just received three new case managers we were actually able to give them a choice of type of support and that's the first time that i've seen that normally it would be okay so we have you housed and we now need to attach support so we're going to assign you this person now it's like, well, we have a couple of people you can choose from. How lovely is that? It's really exciting, <laughs> so actually. It is very exciting. Because the chances of success are so much higher when you have agency, when it's your choice, when you feel like it's a good fit for you. Yeah, absolutely. Like so, people know themselves best, right? De most definitely. And sometimes, you know, it's like if you're going to see, um, you know, sometimes people go to marriage counseling and they go to the first one and they, you know, it's, it doesn't work well. It doesn't jive. They don't connect. So they yeah, get the Yeah, there's just option. kind of a certain mojo that you yeah, need. Yeah, you have the choice to go and, and seek out uh, somebody else. Well, you know, that that we're not quite there yet as a community in our homeless sector to be that, give people that big of a choice. But today for the first time, I was actually able to give a couple of choice of who they would like us to assign them for support. So we were getting, we're getting there. And it's because of the by names list data that we got those three staff to begin with. But circling back to the by names list, because like we're just talking about all these factors that can be impacting how up to date it is, right? Like people find their own private market housing. Maybe sometimes people reconcile with family and move back in with family. People can move just away, just leave the leave the city, leave the province. How do you how do you guys know that the list is up to date? Yeah, it's a great question. So we actually look for updates every 90 days. Some communities do it every 60 days, but our community decided to do it every 90 days. So every 90 days, um, myself and my colleague are like literally going over you know, we have a formula to help us to sort it, but we, we, go, we look through who hasn't had an update in 90 days and we reach out to whoever added them to the BNL or whoever we know is supporting them. So the list in and of itself will tell you whether this person's been updated before 90 days. Exactly, yeah. So we're always looking for updates. One of the other really cool things that we can do, everything we do in a coordinated access system and with the by names is, is, with, is housing focused. It's not to manage homelessness. I think we've done a great job of managing homelessness for many years now. It's time to take it up a notch. 
I mean, this is going to be maybe a, a silly question, but isn't how is housing not managing homelessness? What is what's the distinction there? So managing homelessness is when you're providing resources to keep somebody alive while they're not housed. Oh, I see. So you know, so stuff in, like shelters. Exactly. So so having a housing focused lens means the end goal for this individual is to have them in their forever home. Maybe it's even in a transitional home for a few years while they, you know, work on certain aspects of their life before they move into that forever home. But it's housing, not shelter, not, you know, emergency warming spaces. Those are all management of homelessness and they're necessary to keep people safe for that period of time. But if we don't attach housing uh, initiatives as well, then we're just going to continue to 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 have to invest in managing homelessness year after year after year. Absolutely, and I hate to repeat myself, but without that housing piece as well, you put um, you you put um, the the shelters and these other aspects, these other services, in a position to be providing a service they're not designed to provide. How, homelessness was never intended to be long term. Shelters were never intended to have somebody in there for years. No, that's not what they're designed for. No, absolutely not. That's not what the staff are trained for. No, H- homelessness is meant to be rare, brief, and non-reoccurring. And so when we can when we can look at the inflow of people coming into our system, what happens to them when they're in the system, and how do we get them out of the system and into a permanent housing, that's kind of the function of the by names list. And when somebody gets evicted from housing, because it does happen, and they and then the inflow comes back in and they come back onto the by names list, we're able to look at it and say, okay, so what happened? What went wrong? Maybe it might be a matter of, oh, wow, that was a terrible unit for that person to go into, or as I was able to prove to get our three new intensive case managers, they had no support. Right. So had they had support, they probably could have stayed there. We probably could have worked out some of the issues with the landlord. We could have helped them learn how to do guest management or whatever the barriers were. It's another were. example of the human of what's good for human rights being good for the budget, right? Like yeah. it's funny how um, how synchronous these things can really be. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, like private market landlords um, have so many different things to balance that they often, you know, they they're often reluctant to house an individual who's been entrenched in homelessness that comes with barriers barriers to housing from being homeless, you know, like having potential addictions or active active addictions or mental health barriers. But if we can attach supports to kind of be that liaison between the landlord and the individual and help work on It builds things. confidence. Yeah. So it's like using a housing first model in the private market sector. Many communities are doing this successfully. Moncton's behind on that. We rely heavily on our agencies to house, to, to use housing first models. Oh, you mentioned that in Ontario, in order to get funding for um, for working with homeless people and to be a to be working with housing that you need to be part of this coordinated access that's not the case for us so not in our province right now it's not we rely on agencies that receive funding for homeless resources to use the system so that's a, that, that kind of loops us back to your question earlier about why the number discrepancy. So at the end of December, we had 247 individuals on our by names list, but we had other agencies or other individuals and community saying that they know there's a lot more. So I guess my quest, I guess my, my take on that is, you know, if I need a kidney transplant and my family doctor put, you know, sends a referral for me to, to go on the kidney transplant list. And and we know it's a long list and they use their own priority processes. So I might not go to the top of the list. I might be somewhere in the middle. If I say to the family doctor, 
I'm not going to bother to do that because the list is too long. I know people who've been on that list for five years. I know people who died waiting on that list for kidneys. The doctor's not going to just say to me, oh, okay, no problem, and forget about the whole thing. They're going to continue to work with me on that. They're going to continue to try to encourage me to use that process because it's the only way I'm going to get a kidney. Absolutely. So every individual is different. Other individuals be like, heck, yes, get me on that list. What do I need to do? <laughs> so, you know, we're working with a population that has been so, I want to say, they've been so let down by systems and processes their entire life in many cases. Many of these individuals, you know, are failed by child protection. One third so, is what Vincent said. Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to trust and it's hard to have any faith in a system or a list or a process. So sometimes there's work to be done to build that trust, to get someone on the by names list. Absolutely. Because feeling hopeful is a very, can be a very vulnerable place to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it can be a lot to, to ask for, of someone if you're not, um, if, if that service isn't then there to kind of feed that hopefulness. So back to how it works. In Ontario, because it's endorsed by the province, it's now mandated and mandatory. So in Moncton, we're not quite there yet, but I feel hopeful that our province may get us there because our province is aware of this. So just picture... Uh, right now, all of the homeless resources, housing apartments, uh, case management, like money going into directly into homelessness. If all of those resources had to be dedicated to the system that we're using and our prioritization was, was in place and we were using our priority processes properly, then every individual experiencing homeless in Moncton would have equal access to the services that are available, as opposed to an individual agency saying, I'm just going to keep my resources and I'm just going to serve my people. So when I see a homeless resource, an apartment um, being, ha being filled by somebody who's not on the by names list, my first question is, well, how do you know that person was going to die next compared to the 247 that are on our list? Because how do you know that that person was in priority? And if I'm understanding from what you mentioned earlier, just to take a step back at the larger system, those numbers are what informs the province about what our current needs are, right? Because that was kind of, that was the controversy when I was reading the news was the province had only provided for about 250 people because that was their understanding of what the need was. Right. That's correct. So the data is used for resources. Um, and then it, it, it gets even deeper because the, the system that we're using even allows us to dig deeper to, to try to, you know, explore other resources across Canada that we might not have, that we should have. So we can, I kind of work like from a national lens as well and work with other communities in Canada that are using the same system and that have implemented resources that we could certainly use. So we, we kind of have that it allows us to do that as well, which is really interesting. If all of our reasons, I feel like it's about targeting or dedicating resources and targeting to the right population because homelessness can also be a very broad, um, kind of like a very broad uh, d a description. Um, so if you kind of think about too, you know, there's there's a need in our communities for affordable housing, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's supportive housing. So just to be very clear, the by names list is specifically for individuals who are already experiencing homelessness. It is not for individuals who are at risk of losing their apartment. It's not for students who are displaced, but still going to be, you know, out, out of their residence for the summer. And now they got to look for an apartment 
apartment and our housing stock is low, so they would go on the buy names. Is that's not what it's for. It's about, and even if we did put those folks on there, if we're using our prioritization properly, we wouldn't be dedicating a homeless resource to that person next. Right, because uh, there are definitely different levels of need going on in our community right now as the the supply is low and people who are precariously housed has increased a lot. Yeah, and so we even actually used our by names as data to help us in that area as well because I was receiving intakes for individuals that weren't considered homeless yet, but they definitely needed housing interventions. They're houseless or going to be weren't considered homeless but they're like couch surfing or like weren't considered homeless but they're they're not they're kind of near eviction like they that need kind some of thing? yeah exactly. They need some help and support, no doubt about it. But they don't need a homeless resource over the two hundred and forty seven people who've already hit that that marker, you know, right. I kind of say it like if you're if if you're if your boss comes into you today and says, you know, unfortunately, we do the cutbacks, you know, we have to lay you off at the end of the month. Um, you're not immediately going to go and apply for income assistance. Right? right. So for that month, you're going to be looking for a job and you're going to be trying to, so trying to figure out a way to prevent it touching there's, the system. There's different levels of intervention. Yeah, exactly. So we have employment counselors in our community that can help you with that. So what our community didn't have was very many prevention resources. So again, we could use our data to go to the government and say, hey, we should probably use some reaching homes funds or get some other funding for some prevention services. So right now we are looking, right now there's work happening in Moncton at the shelter levels for prevention and diversion, but also at the community level. So when somebody touches one of our homeless resources because they're, they suspect they're going to become homeless or they've received an eviction or they've received a rent hike, you know, these really expensive renovation, rental evictions and things. Yes. There's a dedicated resource for that, and we don't have to use our homelessness resources for it. Now, I would love for us to get to a point in our community where we can get the two, like I'm saying 247 people, but we know it's higher for January. I just haven't submitted the data yet. I'll be submitting that next uh, next week. So for today's purpose, we'll use the 247 from the end of December, knowing it's higher. And my understanding is that right now, although the through the by names list, you, we are regularly housing people, their intake or the influx is greater than... Yeah. So for example, November, we housed, we saw 31 people housed off the by names list. And that includes people who find their own solutions too. Not every single individual needs an agency to house them or, you know, people are resilient and do have natural resources. So sometimes people forge relationships and they can afford an apartment together because they have dual income now or they reunite with with family and so family allows them to come back into their space and so there's you know sometimes people or you know in single room occupancies are becoming more popular and more affordable for individuals so people the 31 people that were housed is a combination of people who received offers from MB housing people who received offers from agencies like rising tide uh, and the others, and people who um, may have gotten rent subsidies or found their own solutions in private markets. So it's a combination of those types of housing. So 31 people moved off of our by names list in November into housing. Um, and 25 were newly identified. So we added 25 brand new people that we didn't have on there before in November. So December month, we housed 23 people. But we had 39 new people enter our system that we didn't have before. I don't have the numbers for January yet, but I think off the top of my head, we house roughly 15 people off the by names list in January. Don't quote me on that. It might have been 13 and it might have been 17, but roughly 15. Um, and I'm not sure how many new people came into our system, but I think that it's definitely higher than what left. So those are like some trends we, we pay attention to. 
Yeah. And like, uh, I, maybe this is outside of the purview, but it, it, we just spoke with uh, ACORN, the tenancy advocacy and the impacts of the, the lack of, uh, the, about the, the rent cap going away. And I do wonder how that'll impact the by names list and your guys's data, because that means a lot of the people who, uh, you know, uh, can't pocket or can't handle uh, even a 10% rent hike in one year is still very high and it's much outstrips income. It'll, I don't know. It's uh, just thinking out loud about where those people come from who, who now need your services, right? Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, it's about stopping the inflow or slowing down the inflow because we, you know, we can build all the housing we want, move people into housing and, and even target the resources to make sure we're housing the, the most prioritized. But we also have to be looking at the inflow into the system. So that's where a lot of prevention measures come into play. A lot of, you know, things like rent caps and other solutions communities have come up with in other provinces. The by names list isn't designed to tackle all those things. The no. by names list is designed to prioritize who is going to move into the next available resource. Exactly. So we require agencies to dedicate their resources to the by names list. Exactly. It's, it comes back to this being a, a multifactorial issue where yeah. it needs to be handled at multiple levels to get an effective solution. Yeah. And it also like with, in, for example, with the reaching homes funds, because that is dedicated uh, coordinated access resources, it allows me to kind of keep track a little bit too, to say, Hey, you know, we have like our, our most uh, vulnerable folks are getting skipped over. Why is that? You know, why are we not matching them to these apartments? What's the gap here that we need to fill? That's what the government gave that money to do. So it allows me to kind of look at that and, 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 um, Look and see how we can improve the system in that way as well. My understanding uh, is that Built for Zero has been very effective with our veterans. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So one of the other components of the system is it allows us to kind of hone in on particular populations. So veterans was one of our priorities we chose to do as a community. And in fact, across Canada, Built for Zero um, pledged a, an agreement to prioritize veterans. So we joined that um, that 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 initiative. And, when we, and we started it a couple of years ago. And first, like when we first started, and I said, okay, how are we going to even, where do we even begin? We don't even know who's veterans. So we, we, we really had to, to for, like, formalize some systematic responses. So we had to start making sure every single agency was asking that question on their intake. Are you a veteran? And, and then we learned, okay, it's not, it's not even enough to even just ask if you're a veteran. It needs to be more specific even than that. So we got advice from Veteran Affairs Canada, and they actually crafted a, a sentence for us to use. They crafted a sentence. <laughs> And I that sentence that. is used all over Canada for all veterans. What's the sentence? Do we know? Uh, we do, but I don't have it in my head. I have very limited I'm storage space. I'm going to post that sentence to the Facebook group. <laughs> I'll send it to you. So it's very specific because not everybody even knows what a veteran is or if they qualify to be a veteran. And when you're talking to someone who's so displaced and maybe so harmed from being outside, maybe relying on substances and things like that, sometimes they just say no because it doesn't matter to them anymore. They have such a trauma. They don't even want to talk about being a veteran. So... We had to work together with the Veteran Affairs to, to learn how to overcome some of that stigma. So then we realized, okay, 
now we know how to ask people if they're veterans. And so now when people say yes, what do we do next? Um, and so then we learned we have to verify it through Veteran Affairs Canada. So we created a process along the way. It took us a while and it was a lot of trial and error. And one of the learning pieces for this was it was very difficult for frontline staff to, to do the steps that were required when somebody identified as a veteran. So we actually went looking for funds and found funds to uh, through veterans uh, services to hire a person to take over the veterans pieces. What were the barriers the staff were experiencing that led to that need for like a specialized role? Yeah, so if you can imagine you're in, you have somebody who is experiencing homelessness and you're in front of you and you might even be sitting it on a park bench doing your intake with them um, or they're coming into your office and so you're having to do a lot of steps. Um, you know, we have to know if the person has ID, we have to know if they have an income and there's steps to take if they don't because unfortunately landlords require both. So from a housing lens, if someone doesn't have ID your income, we now have extra steps to take to, if we're thinking about them getting housed, right? Just to open a bracket, that people, that when you don't have ID, it is impossible to get ID. Yeah. So I can, we can talk about that in a moment, but um, for the veterans piece, so it's, you require to verify someone as a veteran. You have to call the toll-free number at VAC Canada and find out. You have to get them to sign a consent form. You have to fax that over to VAC Canada. It's a lot to do from it a park takes, bench. You can't, you're not going to do that from a park bench. And so to follow up with the person, you might not be able to find them. And then also imagine you have a t you have so many people in your caseload that all need follow-up steps to do. So we just really felt that there was funds available. We can target somebody to work with our veterans. So now to simplify it, we have a step-by-step -step process, but not everybody has to learn it and do it. As soon as I receive an intake for the by names list and it tells me someone's a veteran, I immediately contact our veteran person and they know what to do. Um, so we started when we started to do that, we started to see great success. And one of the um, goals in order for us to, to say properly that we have achieved housing all of our homeless veterans that we know about, um, we had to meet some criterias. So Built for Zero said to us, before we announce that you have what they call functional zero, and that doesn't mean there's never going to be another veteran homeless in your community again. Functional zero means there's not going to be any more than three homeless individuals, and in this case veterans, experiencing homelessness in your community for more than three months at consecutive. So your system needs to be strong enough that that's the case. So we've been sitting at a functional zero for many months now. However, we're not allowed to say we've achieved functional zero until we validate that we've done our due diligence. And so what that means is all the folks that are on the by names list and have been for a while may not have been asked if they're a veteran because we just started doing that recently. So what about the folks who are already on there? So we had to actually go back and ask them all. And you know something? When we did that, we identified three or four more. And so, you know, we just saw how, how honing in on a particular cohort and really having dedicated resources works. So now our goal is, okay, we've got that part figured out. We now have to house a homeless veteran within 45 days in order for Canadian Alliance to end homelessness to say we've reached functional zero. So now that's our goal. As soon as somebody is a veteran, we attach them to the veteran outreach worker and they do all the steps. And our goal is now they need ha we need to get them into housing within 45 days. So that requires private market landlords, agency landlords to work with us and agree to give veterans a chance. So we're going to provide the support. We're not guaranteeing success. Sometimes people are, gonna, are not going to meet the tenancy 
expectations and they're going to be asked to leave or evicted. We're not going to give up on them. We're going to try to find an department that's going to provide better supports or more supports or be a little bit more suitable. That brings us back to kind of the acuity question, right? Because, you know, there has, I can only imagine that there's some people who are more acute than what our current system has a, has resources to address, right? Yeah, so that's something else the By Names List is able to do. We're able to kind of track some of that stuff. So two years ago, um, what I recognized in our coordinated access meetings was that there were so many things to cover that we couldn't do it all in one meeting, so we had to start kind of subdividing things out. So we created, and I learned that in different places in Canada and across the United States, they do complex case consulting. And I was actually invited to go to New Jersey and sit in on their complex case consulting because they're known to have a really strong... Uh, what the, What is complex case I'm going to tell you because it's where the magic happens. Amazing. I like magic. Oh, yeah. So we look at very complex individuals on the by names list and then oftentimes folks that have had a housing opportunities, but they weren't successful. And in other cases, there's folks that have been homeless for a very long time and not given a housing opportunity. And so why is that? It does beg the question, right? Like what's what's going on that this pattern has emerged, right? Right. So we can we we can look at that and, as, and we can bring the individual to complex case consulting and it's action oriented. We never just bring somebody to complex case consulting to have a conversation about their barriers. We say, okay, what can we do to move this person forward? And in some cases it might be, you know what, they need a psychiatrist or it could be, um, we can't get them even to like sign a form to get ID. How are we going to work around that? You know, so it's, it's, it's sometimes it's a, it's the very early stages of getting action items done. And then at the priority, the, the goal is housing. And so we don't stop complex case consulting about them until we've done everything needing to be done to get them into an apartment. And now we're waiting on the right. We know what type of apartment it is. You know, we know what kind of resource they need. Sometimes it's a special care home or what we call our adult residential facilities. So that means they need an assessment through social development. So then that'll be the action item. And so there's very, each case is looked at uniquely and we're not case consulting on every single person homeless in Moncton because it's not possible. We complex case consult on the complex cases, people who are truly stuck. um, And we're not sure as just the one agency servicing them what to do. How are people identified as being a complex case? Is it like looking at kind of a number of evictions or years homeless or both of those or neither of those? Yeah, a combination um, of all of those factors. And maybe they have, you know, we've tried them in our most um, supportive unit available and it still wasn't successful. Maybe Mm. we're missing something in our community that that person needs that we can bring in from outside. So one of the things that I have uh, noticed over the past couple of years that we are lacking some very specific uh, things in community that I've seen in other communities that I've, you know, brought forward to the province that they are considering for now for the more complex situations. Things like type of supports or things like kind of something to do with the type of housing? Both. Hmm. Yeah, both. Different types of housing and different types of support. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I'm thinking back to the veterans and functional zero and how exciting it would be to have that same kind of energy or that same kind of specialization in in so many other groups like new immigrants, uh, domestic violence victims, uh, child protection clients, you know? Yeah. And even like seniors, for example, certain age groups or even our youth. You know, one of the things we've learned about our by names list um, is that our our youth under the age of 19 do not have access to 
to housing. You have to be 18 to qualify for, um, sorry, 19, I believe, to qualify for an MB housing rent subsidy. Shelters often won't take anybody under 19. They do make case-by-case exceptions, but as a general blanket rule, if you're 16, 17, or 18 and you're experiencing homelessness, you have no access to anything. You don't qualify for income assistance. I had not realized all of that. <laughs> I mean, I think I knew each thing individually, but when you put it all together, yeah, right? So Exactly. So, so you know, the, our by names just allowed us to look at that gap, and it allowed us to say, okay, well, let's start making sure we're collecting, or we're we're um, prov- we're getting the uh, capturing those individuals, so we can show the province, look, we have X number of people who are 16, 17, and 18 in our community sleeping outside. Like seriously, we need to do better. So. Sometimes even like a, breaking things down into smaller sections. And yeah, looking at acuity, you know, the, we have X number of folks in our community that are so high acuity that we have exhausted all of our resources. So we need more. We need, you know, we look at another community and see that they have a, a very specialized service that we don't have for that population. Let's get it in here. And so numbers talk, right? So when we can show that data, we can get better results. But it requires people to go on the by names list. So again, let's go back to your the kidney transplant. Just imagine if my kidney transplant referral stayed sitting on my doctor's desk. Or if my doctor said to me, Don, there's a, a five-year wait for a kidney transplant. I don't think we're even going to bother to put you on that list. You know, so... It's unimaginable. In that no, context, it, right? it would never happen. It would never happen. It would be neglectful. And we have to start looking at our homeless uh, population as a health situation and treat it accordingly. We need minimum best practices, minimum standards. It's not okay to say that you know there's X number of individuals in your community homeless and you haven't done anything about it. That's not acceptable. No, because there is a life and death piece yeah, to it, right? Yeah, and it's and and it's it's time consuming to do the pieces required to get someone on the by names list and get them housing ready. It takes time to do IDs. It takes time to get somebody's income. Um, but you know something, if you don't do it, they're not going to get housing. So hopefully, you have a backup plan for them, right. because if you're not doing what's required to get that individual on the by names list so that we can work on things and we can advocate for more housing to the government, then hopefully you have a plan B for that person because they're relying on you. Um, and, and the other piece of it is, is let's like, we, we can't make the decision for somebody to say, no, they're not going to want to do that. We have to at least deliver the opportunity to, to let people know you're experiencing homelessness, you're sleeping outside. You know, we do have this process in place that we can help you with. Um, and here's what it looks like for you. And if they say no, again, like I say, you don't give up on them. It's, it's a continual conversation. We've had that happen. We've had shelters contact us to say, you know, we have this individual, you know, in, in shelter and, and we're trying to get them on the by names list, but they don't want to go on and we're not sure what else to do and we'll get someone else to go over and have a conversation with them and then it's a different conversation there's you know maybe a different relationship or trust and it'll be successful so yeah and I think there is kind of a not not a paradigm shift but I think there there isn't like when before I started having these conversations and sitting down I very much was of the opi- of the opinion that things were more hopeless than they were. They're still difficult. I don't want to minimize how the hard work and everything, but I really was coming at the, coming at these conversations with like, what are we going to do? There's no supply. Everything's so expensive now. Did we miss our chances for housing first? Like, did we lose? Did we? Uh, did Moncton? Did, if we'd started in 2017, everything was like only a hundred thousand dollars, and now it's so expensive. Is it too late? And like. 
it's it's still challenging. It's still hard. It's still work, but it's not hopeless. And I think that's so important to say. Well, it absolutely is. So like the three things that I see in our community that that I think is is gives me the most hope is the fact that we're using this system. Like we have all of our agencies working together, coordinated, sharing resources. It's no longer, oh, they're my clients or that's my housing. I'm going to choose who I want to go in there. So, yeah, you it, know. It, there's not the kind of a compet internal competition happening. No, it doesn't matter if you're sleeping on the park bench or if, if you're sleeping on the park bench or if you're sleeping in House of Nazareth. It should not matter. You shouldn't. It, sh it shouldn't be, oh, because you're staying at House of Nazareth, you have access to different resources than for somebody who's sleeping outside because they can't go to House of Nazareth for some reason. Just using that as an yeah. example, right? Um, I mean, again, going back to the emergency room, the, f the doctor doesn't just come out and service his own family doctor patients. He comes out and services who needs the service next. Even though he does have a caseload of family, you know, on his family physician caseload, that's not who he comes out in services. So our homeless sector, the system allows us to do that collectively, um, which I find very incredible. And it allows us to now actually be able to show the government the real need. So there's no guessing. There's no investing multi-millions of dollars in building shelter after shelter after shelter. Let's start building the type of housing we need and and move people out of the existing shelters to make room for others to come in when there is com when, when the inflow is high absolutely and uh, like please disagree with me if you don't think this is correct but something I find interesting about taking these actions now is we don't need to reinvent the wheel there's a lot of uh, pioneered programs there's a lot of data that we can lean on to make sort of informed evidence-based decisions for our communities there's other communities that have done these kinds of programs and we can see how they worked and where they could have improved and things like that absolutely and because of the built for zero model as I have mentioned the other 40-ish communities across Canada using this we all have access to each other we have a community advisor that works with us um, in Moncton that, that works with the, all the other advisors and their team across Canada. So we, we, we have access to that. Um, so we don't have to recreate the wheel and we can bring ideas to our community. Is there a program in a different community that you think would be really exciting to bring to Moncton? Like, is there something somewhere else that's kind of new and would meet a need here that you think would be great to bring here? That's a great question. And I see a lot of really um, creative things um, happening and, and even in our province, you know, in, in not in Moncton specifically, but we have you know, the mini home uh, complexes going up or the tiny homes. So some of those really creative um, um, solutions to housing. I think um, the first, the, the thing though, I think that would be the most impactful when you talk about the really, really complex individuals in our community that are, most of them are sleeping outside, um, not even accessing shelter, you know, dying on our streets. They're the most visible and probably the highest system users, you know, using emergency and probably corrections, you know, the RCMP and all of the agencies. So they're kind of like the highest system users and they're just really suffering. Um, there is a program that I worked with um, when I did this work in Newfoundland and the program came out of the UK and it's called NAVNET, N-A-V-N-E-T. And it's basically a collective of all multidisciplinary professionals, all of those systems that would be used all kind of come together and complex case consult on each unique individual and housing's the end game and necessary. Like it's, it's the component is get them in housing and we now have this team wrapped around them and each individual's case plan looks very different because it's individual based. 
and it would be like the mo- it would be targeted to the very most complex individuals, which are the 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 you know we're able to capture some of who those folks are on our by names list, but there's probably also others in community as well. Uh, there's there's definitely room to grow. Would that be something that'd be really complicated to implement here? So um, the I think um, the the biggest challenge would be, and if other communities can have overcome it, then we sure as heck can too. So I believe that. I think that sometimes we set our limits uh, unnecessarily, but multidisciplinary teams to be able to share information is a complex process um, systematically. So that needs to be overcome and it's been overcome in other communities to be able to deliver the service so it can be overcome here as well. Yeah, in terms of accessibility, actually this just came to mind, is, um, are these systems all accessible to people who are French speaking primarily or is it, is there are these bilingual services everywhere? Yeah, absolutely. So like it, like the, in terms of, if you mean like getting on an intake done for the by names, exactly, for, exa- yeah. for example, yeah. So m- most frontline staff would be able to deliver services in English or French, just like in any other sector. Right. Yeah. Some people are strictly Francophone or strictly Anglophone and some are bilingual. So language would not be a barrier to this, pr- to this process at all. Amazing. Uh, Don, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate um, you taking the time to explain all this really exciting stuff for us. I'm really excited to get that sentence from veterans to see <laughs> to, like the, 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 the sentence crafted by, by 40 hands or whatever it was. And um, no, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well and Fair is brought to you by La Station Workspace, working in partnership with O Strategies. La Station is a co-working space that brings people together in Moncton, New Brunswick for community and collaboration. Well and Fair is hosted by me, Anna Larad, and produced by Elevate Studios. This podcast has been brought to you in part by O Strategies as a part of their 18-month Solutions Lab on Housing in Greater Moncton, funded by the CMHC under their National Housing Strategy. Whether you are looking to clarify your strategy, enable innovation, or foster leadership, O Strategies uses simple tools and structures to help organizations and communities achieve better outcomes and deliver best possible outcomes via a human-centered lens. Committed to achieving concrete, sustainable, and inclusive results, O Strategies will help you build your team's capacity so that you can feel confident facing whatever the world throws your way. If you're in need of a helping hand in this ever-changing environment, O Strategies can help. Get started online today at ostrategies.ca or find them on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.